This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There are some who believe that we lose part of our souls when we take advantage of high-speed travel. Simply put, man was not meant to move so fast. Walking, running, even horseback, those were the methods of movement that allowed us to retain all of ourselves. But when you fly, you walk through the portal of the terminal, seal yourself into a metal tube and sit for hours, breathing the recycled air from where you began. In that time, you're suspended, just like the very vessel you're in. It's only once you emerge through the gate at arrivals that you truly rejoin your fellow man. Of course, to most, air travel is just a part of life. A long, inconvenient affair defined by long lines, short-tempered TSA agents, and delayed departures. Most people would be hard-pressed to name any noteworthy feature specific to a single airport, an airport, by definition, is a place you're always trying to get out of. But there is one airport that has a different reputation. Located in the heart of America, it's something of a gateway, a hub of connecting flights from east, south, north, and west. And all who pass through it are greeted by the same ominous sight. A massive blue metal horse its eyes glow burning crimson, and it stands on its hind legs in a permanent pose of aggression. This is the infamous Blue Mustang. It sits near the runways of the Denver International Airport, the largest airport in the United States. 
filled with bizarre works of art, buildings with no purpose, and an alleged network of mysterious underground tunnels, the Denver International Airport has been riddled with mystery since before it even opened its doors. Is it all random? Or is the Denver Airport hiding something? Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a podcast original. Every Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to ParCast.com slash merch for more information. You can listen to previous episodes of Conspiracy Theories, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify and anywhere you listen to podcasts. This is our first episode on the Denver International Airport, or as locals call it, DIA. To many, the Denver airport is just a notably large airport that serves as the transient hub for hundreds of connecting flights every single day. This is due to its central location in the continental United States. But there is more to the Denver airport than layovers and Auntie Anne's pretzels. Since its opening in 1995, DIA has come to be one of the biggest hotbeds of conspiracy theories in the United States. From the troubles that plagued its construction to the rampant, unexplained symbols still being decoded today, the Denver airport has been mired in mystery and controversy for the entirety of its existence. The size of the structures, the layout of the runways, even the art that adorns the walls have given rise to conspiracy theories about sinister shadow governments and secret societies. DIA has been linked to everything from Mayan death prophecies to supposed secret bioweapons intended to wipe out most of the world's population. Some believe the airport is hiding a bunker reserved for the broadly termed elite to hide out during a potential doomsday scenario. Others think that every aspect of the airport, from the shape of the buildings to its bizarre choice of artistic decorations, is an intentional coded message laid out by the alleged New World Order that aims to control the Earth following a phase of depopulation. The Freemasons even tie into some stories. The sheer density of conspiracy theories surrounding the Denver airport has ensured that it never strays too far from the black holes of conspiracy sites and unhinged rambling that pepper the underbelly of the internet. But... Is there any truth to it? Is the Denver airport really trying to tell us something? Or is it just like any other airport, with no deeper meaning hiding behind its constantly changing gates? 
The Denver airport is kind of like Noah's Ark. They were both created in response to bad weather. For over 60 years, from 1929 to 1995, the Stapleton International Airport served as the primary aviation hub for Colorado. There's a broad sequence of events that eventually led to Stapleton's decommissioning. But first, let's take a look at the rise and fall of Stapleton Airport as Denver's premier airstrip. America has been using airliner jets for travel since 1925. The boom in aircraft technology during World War I led to a rise in the use of planes for cross-country travel. As planes became more popular, the United States started building larger and larger airfields to meet demand. Naturally, many of these airfields were centered around cities. This, in turn, led to the construction of the Stapleton Airport just outside the downtown Denver area in 1929 which was intended to consolidate aircraft landings from several of the smaller airstrips in the area. Originally called Denver Municipal Airport, it was rechristened Stapleton International in 1944 in honor of Denver Mayor Benjamin Stapleton, who had overseen and pushed for the airport's development. The Stapleton Airport served the region fairly well for a number of decades, primarily because of two factors. First, at under 300,000 people, the city of Denver and the population of the surrounding area as a whole was much smaller in the 1930s than it is today. And second, fewer people flew in the early years of passenger air travel. The Stapleton Airport was sizable enough by the standards of the mid-20th century, but as air travel came to be the dominant means of cross-country transportation, Stapleton started to be pressed for terminal space and resources. By the mid-1970s, the facility had four concourses and served as the hub of a number of major airlines, but two different factors were about to render the facility obsolete. The first was the Airline Deregulation Act of 1978. Believe it or not, from 1938 to 1978, the federal government regulated air travel as a public utility. It set the cost of fares and the interstate routes that airlines could fly in. This was in the interest of protecting the industry from potential bankruptcies. By dictating the terms of business, the government ensured America's major airlines were profitable. But this occurred at the expense of the American flyer. Since airlines couldn't offer competitive rates or even respond to demand for certain routes, it was often the customer who ended up being saddled with high prices and inconvenient routes. The exponential growth of the airline industry led to a demand for change by the 1970s. The Airline Deregulation Act of 1978 took control of routes and fares away from the federal government and allowed the airlines to participate in the free market. As a result of this, larger airlines began purchasing smaller ones, and the Denver area suddenly found itself a prime destination for connecting flights between the disparate sides of the country. The Stapleton Airport, which by then was servicing millions of people every year, began to look into plans to further expand its operating base. But then another problem arose. Denver's proximity to the Rocky Mountains made it and the surrounding Colorado area a prime hub for much of the mining, petroleum, and energy industries in the United States. 
As these businesses moved into the Denver area, the population of the city increased and the municipal authority found themselves hounded by more and more requests to construct high-rise skyscrapers in the area. The strained Stapleton Airport, which had once been known for its convenient location close to the Denver metropolitan area, was suddenly an obstacle. And so, as America moved into the 1980s, the leaders of Denver began discussions on a new airport. This one would not be inhibited by city development and could represent the full power of American industry. And maybe, just maybe, it would come to represent something more sinister as well. Next, we'll discuss the troubled construction and long-delayed opening of the Denver International Airport. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life, at least not the ones you're thinking of, but they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home, like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of bug it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. And with over 95 years of experience, it's no wonder they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. By the early 1980s, Stapleton International Airport in Colorado was fast approaching a point where it could no longer suitably fulfill the needs of the country. Following the Deregulation Act of 1978, larger airlines began to consolidate and grow. Additionally, new airlines from abroad began to set up footholds in America from international headquarters and designate specific American airstrips as their hubs. The Denver area was a natural location to serve as one of these hubs. But despite the construction of additional concourses, the airport found itself pressed for gate space to meet the demands of all the flights that traveled in and out of it. Furthermore, Stapleton was only three miles away from downtown Denver. While this had made for convenient air travel in prior decades, by 1980, Denver had a population of close to half a million people, up 200,000 from the population when the airport first opened. That population growth and boom in jobs in the energy industry led to the proposed construction of skyscrapers to serve as office space and living space downtown. But there was a problem. Stapleton Airport was so close to Denver that there had to be laws limiting building height so as not to impede aircraft from landing or taking off. 
What's more, the broader Denver metropolitan area had grown substantially since the 1930s. There were a number of communities located quite close to the airfield. And one of these communities, Park Hill, had filed a lawsuit against the airport about the noise that airplanes made in the late hours of the night. Today, certain smaller airports that are more integrated into communities do enact noise ordinances that prevent any arrivals or departures after a certain hour so as not to disturb the neighbors. But in the 1980s, Stapleton Airport was already struggling to serve the numerous routes that wanted to stop there. There was simply no feasible way for the airfield to reduce its operating hours without essentially guaranteeing that every flight through Denver would be significantly delayed. Finally, and most significantly, it was becoming more and more clear that as Stapleton Airport was expanded throughout the 1940s, 1950s, and 1960s, there had not been much thought put into the requirements of such a busy airport hub. In short, Stapleton's runways were too close together. When the weather was bad and visibility was low, it became impossible for multiple planes to land on separate runways at the same time. Anytime Denver was beset with bad weather, the number of operational runways shrank, which in turn led to dozens of aircraft circling through choppy skies for hours, waiting for their turn to land. Consider the fact that Denver experiences inclement weather for, on average, about one-third of the calendar year, and you have an airport that was clearly no longer suited for the environment it existed in. And so, it was decided that a new airport would be constructed. Now, for those not in construction, it may be difficult to conceive of the sheer scope of a project that an airport represents. In our modern world, airports, like cars, are a part of life, and it can be easy to forget that there was a time when someone actually had to plan, fund, and build all those tarmacs and terminals. But that's exactly what the officials of Denver set out to do in the early 1980s. The landscape of Colorado was primed to host a project of this scale. In between the vast mountains are miles and miles of untouched plains that spread out to every horizon. Once Denver city officials had committed to their mission to build a new airport somewhere that wouldn't be inhibited by any nearby cities, they had plenty of options in the broader region around central Colorado. In 1989, after close to a decade of planning, Denver Mayor Federico Pena and the federal government authorized the first installment of funds to pay for the project. Construction began in 1989, with a proposed opening date of October 29, 1993. The DIA would miss its targeted opening. It would, in fact, miss it by quite a large margin. A number of setbacks plagued the project right from the start. Denver city officials, with the support of the heads of some of the country's biggest airlines, had to spend several years and millions of dollars on a PR campaign to sell the idea of the project to the people of Denver. It can be easy to forget that despite the fact that the Denver airport is a massive international hub that services people from all over the world, its construction had the biggest impact on the people of Denver. And despite the aforementioned issues with Stapleton Airport, 
Denver officials were still hard-pressed to convince residents that a new airport nearly 20 miles further away would be in their best interest. So, the new mission became to get people to see DIA as more than just an airport. To get people on board, the airport's planning committee started to pitch the Denver airport as a cultural monument in its own right, something that would reflect the spirit of Colorado to the people who passed through it. In taking this approach, the planners behind the airport set themselves up for both budget problems and a completed building that would baffle and entice even the most fervent conspiracy theorist. The emphasis on making the airport a cultural statement led them to use symbols and art that many would come to look for hidden meaning in. More, the complex building plans opened the construction of the airport up to certain scrutiny. One example of potential mismanagement came from the design of the main concourse building. Mayor Pena ensured that his personal friend, an architect named August Perez, was hired to draft the initial designs for the terminal. Perez reportedly submitted a stack of drawings that couldn't feasibly be made within the budget and time frame that the city had set. The planning committee eventually bought him out of his contract for $6 million and then had to start from scratch. It was Jim Bradburn, a partner in the firm that oversaw the design of the airport buildings, who proposed the terminal's ultimate design. The idea was to make the Denver airport cognizant of the nation's past. Thus, the main terminal building would end up sporting 21 massive white teepee-like structures in reference to the Native Americans who had once roamed the plains of Colorado. So, this city spent millions of dollars trying to figure out what they wanted and eventually settled on a costly building that would seem like it was meant to function more as a work of art than as an actual airport terminal. As we've said, there was a mission to make a statement with the construction. That mandate applied to the inner workings of the airport as well. The Denver airport was one of the first international airports to be constructed after the Airline Deregulation Act of 1978. As the individual airlines were taking more control over their own businesses, they also sought to have a say in the construction of airports. Remember, part of the reason that city officials had fought to create an alternative to Stapleton was to accommodate all the airlines that wanted to operate in Denver. Denver needed these airlines' cooperation if the airport was to be a success. And thus, they gave major airlines, including United Airlines, leeway to make certain demands about the design and function of parts of the airport. These, in turn, led to several last-minute changes which cost money and threatened to push the project behind schedule. There was this prevailing sense that the airport needed to stand out. Given the money that was being poured into the project, the people behind it wanted every aspect to be technologically innovative and culturally significant. It was almost like the city felt that the project would be a failure if people passing through it considered it to be just another airport. It was to be, essentially, a small city that stood out among the stark plains and distant mountains of Colorado. Beyond the numerous and bizarre art and design choices, there was one key innovation that was intended to make it stand out as a kind of airport of the future. This was DIA's automated baggage system. 
You probably have a general familiarity with how checked luggage works at an airport, amidst those miles and miles of conveyor belts and suitcases that are just under the maximum weight limit, are scores of people who drive the luggage trams and load and unload them from the plane. Even with all that work, you're still stuck waiting at baggage claim for what feels like hours. Well, the leadership behind the Denver airport sought to make that wait much shorter. They designed a baggage transportation system that would be fully automated. The proposal was bold and futuristic. The Denver airport was initially conceived to have every part of its luggage system, from weighing bags to checking them in to routing them through connecting flights to the physical act of moving the luggage, run by robots and computers. This development was among the most expensive parts of the airport. Construction created miles and miles of basement tunnels connecting the various terminals and runways for the automated baggage trams to move through. The basic cost for all of it was close to $200 million, and the city of Denver footed most of the bill. In most modern airports, the airlines themselves pay for their own baggage systems, since most airlines occupy single terminals in any given airport. But because the Denver airport was forcing each airline to use their automated system, the airport itself paid for all of it. In theory, the luggage system was going to be the defining achievement of the Denver International Airport, the thing that made the facility stand out from other airports as a testament to innovation. In reality, it was among the key reasons that the project ended up offensively over budget embarrassingly behind schedule, and one of the biggest hotbeds for conspiracies in the United States. Next, we'll discuss the long-delayed opening of the Denver airport, its legacy today, and the myriad factors that lend to its mysterious reputation. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Now back to the story. With four target opening dates unmet, Denver International Airport's ready date is now uncertain. Everything's ready except the baggage system. Gene DeFonso, in charge of installing the computerized luggage mover, says numerous glitches exist. There are so many adjustments that have to be made, tweaks, whatever you want to call it. In the mid-2000s, the New York Times published a retrospective on the troubled construction of the Denver airport. It was titled, appropriately, Denver Airport Saw the Future, It Didn't Work. 
despite the lofty ambitions that led the committee behind the project to invest in an automated luggage system, the system proved to be among the greatest impediments to a timely opening. The expensive delays in building and testing the luggage system, combined with the other last-minute changes enforced by the various airlines, eventually led to a push in the opening day for the airport. DIA was originally slated to open on October 29, 1993. Mayor Wellington Webb, who had replaced Mayor Pena, pushed back the opening date from October to December 1993. The opening was pushed again to March of 1994, and then once again to May of 1994. Despite the numerous issues at play, there was a time when the people in charge really thought they were going to make their May 1994 opening. In anticipation of the prospective May opening, the airport held a press event in April of that year to show off their state-of-the-art automated luggage system. By this point, the baggage transportation system consisted of nearly 100,000 feet of DCV track and 30,000 feet of conveyors. The grand finale of the entire system was how it would actually load the luggage into the plane's cargo hold without the assistance of a human operator. This was accomplished by launching the luggage, almost like a catapult, into the plane. You can imagine how that went. When the reporters arrived to witness the demonstration, they were treated to luggage being launched into the air way off target and splattering on the tarmac. And that was just the luggage that actually made it to the end of the line. Most of the luggage tumbled off the conveyor en route because of the sharp turns and fast movement of the system. The press had gathered to witness a demonstration of some state-of-the-art engineering, something that would render manual labor obsolete. What they saw was a scene of busted zippers and wrinkled clothes scattered across the freshly paved tarmac of the new Denver airport. Construction lagged on for the next few months, and city officials felt the pressure to finally show something for the years of planning and billions of dollars that had gone into the project. The rush to get the airport open at some point before the end of the 20th century actually led to some necessary cutbacks in the initial design of the buildings. Originally, the Denver airport was slated to have 120 operational gates for airliners. That number was slashed to 88 gates ready at the time of opening. For reference, the Stapleton Airport operated 108 gates. The big project that was supposed to be an expansive upgrade from Stapleton actually couldn't handle as many flights as Stapleton. That said, the transition still happened. On February 27, 1995, Continental Flight 34 departed Stapleton Airport bound for London. It was the last commercial airline plane to ever depart from Stapleton's airstrip. The next day, February 28, 1995, Denver International Airport officially began operations with human workers on hand to assist with the luggage. The airport opened a full 16 months later than its originally scheduled date. More astoundingly, the final cost of construction tallied up to $4.8 billion. The original approved budget when the project commenced was $2.9 billion, meaning that all in all, the project went over by nearly $2 billion. 
That's a pretty expensive way to find out that your plan to catapult luggage into a plane doesn't work. Still, despite the humorous chronicle of its creation, the Denver airport has gone on to cement a legacy as one of the busiest, most recognizable airports in the world. At just under 55 square miles in size, Denver International is the second largest airport in the world and the largest in the United States. It features the longest continuous plane runway in North America and is the single largest employer in the entire state of Colorado. So maybe Denver didn't sweat the massively inflated budget. DIA has been a huge boost to Colorado's economy, that's for sure. But the sheer scale of the blunders that occurred during the airport's construction set the stage for the conspiracy theories that still swirl around its terminals. A recent survey indicates that the Denver airport is the 20th busiest airport in the world in terms of foot traffic, with an estimated 64 million travelers passing through the terminals in 2018. That's 64 million people who bear witness to a number of bizarre things about the airport itself. One of the most notable things you might see inside the airport is a series of large, colorful murals, which turn out to be quite disturbing once you get a closer look at them. Key among these are In Peace and Harmony with Nature, which features over a dozen children from various ethnicities and nationalities, all rushing to gather around a glowing book. It seems wholesome, but the mural is flanked by expanding panels on either side that quite literally paint a different picture. On the fringes of the mural, there are crying children and depictions of fire and destruction. There are animals suffering, in particular, a turtle caught in a net, struggling to get free and sporting a terrified expression. Powerful may not be the exact word here, but one's definitely bold enough to turn some heads. Another strange mural is Children of the World Dream of Peace, which features, well, it's a little difficult to describe. It's a bunch of multinational children using a hammer and anvil to bend a pile of swords all set on top of what can only be described as a dead Nazi stormtrooper. And the rainbow that hovers over these children extends over to another panel, which features another Nazi in a gas mask and a poem written by a child who was a concentration camp prisoner during the Holocaust. Of course, when it comes to unsettling art at the Denver airport, there is really nothing that stands out more than the horse. A simple Google search for the Denver airport is more than certain to produce a few images of the 32-foot-tall cast fiberglass sculpture of a horse that sits in a permanent hind leg rear outside the airport. With its violent blue hue and menacing red eyes, locals commonly compare the horse to a demon. Though the official title of the sculpture is Blue Mustang, it has come to be known by the more apt moniker of Blucifer. As unsettling as the piece is, it was actually commissioned in 1993 from the sculptor Luis Jimenez. Intended to capture the spirit of the American West, Blue Mustang would instead have a blood-soaked origin before it was finally unveiled at Denver 15 years after it was first commissioned. In 2006, a piece of the metal horse's frame fell on Jimenez, 
A sharp edge of the metal sliced the femoral artery in his thigh and caused him to bleed out and die. Despite that dark spot in the sculpture's legacy, it was unveiled in 2008 as a permanent fixture of the airport, and it has survived more than one petition to have it removed. The people who have the power to remove the menacing blue horse seem to have no problem with it. In fact, the people who run DIA seem to have no problem with most of the bizarre, controversial exhibits that the airport has to offer. The sinister, disturbing art that occupies the Denver airport has long lent to the conspiracy that someone involved in the construction of the airport is trying to tell the world something. There are the murals that we've mentioned. There are symbols lining the grounds of a number of the walkways. The stone seal that rests on a time capsule in the airport bears the distinguished sigil of the Freemasons. Most notably, there are a series of hideous gargoyles that sit watch over the baggage claim, peering down at unsuspecting travelers as they wait for their luggage. It's all so weird. Too weird, it seems, to exist without a purpose. Perhaps all of these separate paintings and sculptures are hiding some kind of secret code. But what could that be? And why on earth would a coded message be hidden in an airport? The mysteries of Denver Airport predate the airport itself. From the first delay to the opening, people wondered why the project was going so over budget. Given that the airport featured fewer operating gates than the one it was meant to replace, people felt they were right to wonder where those extra $2 billion actually went. The multi-TP tent that covers that main terminal has been its own source of headaches. More than once, the sheer fabric has torn or been damaged under the stress of snow buildup and left those in the terminal exposed to the sky above. Naturally, this raises the question of why the airport spent millions of dollars on a building cover that looked nice as an art piece, but didn't perform the basic function of a roof. The bizarre inconsistencies in the finances and architecture of the Denver airport have raised the question of whether the entire facility is doubling for some other unknown purpose. What that could be is anyone's guess, though naturally there are a few main theories. In our next episode, we will look into the full range of bizarre objects, items, and theories about the Denver International Airport. Our first main theory is that the airport is actually built on top of a doomsday bunker intended for the United States leadership and other members of the broadly termed elite to wait out some kind of nuclear holocaust or otherwise apocalyptic event. Our second main theory is that the airport and the bizarre art and symbols in it are references to the New World Order, a shadowy cabal with plans to wipe out most of humanity and start the world over from scratch. A number of symbols, including references to the always interesting Freemasons, are peppered throughout the terminals and may lend some credibility to this one. From there, there are a number of small, weird conspiracies about the Denver airport that we'll look into. Key among them is the idea that the time capsule commemorated by Denver's mayor in 1994 actually contains a biological weapon that will eradicate most of the human race when it is released. 
Thousands of people pass through the Denver airport every single day, and most of them are likely too focused on making their gait to take note of the bizarre signs all around them. But every year sees a handful of new articles reminding the world of all the unanswered questions about the Denver airport. The airport was supposed to embody the future of travel. Instead, it stands today as a testament to hubris and a possible omen of our world's impending doom. tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back Wednesday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Conspiracy Theories, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskind. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Conspiracy Theories is written by Colin McLaughlin and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. <laughs>